You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 14. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. I'm recording this introduction in an Airbnb in London right now. I'm enjoying a short getaway from Cote d'Ivoire. But before I left, I was lucky to catch today's guest, Neil Gordon, who was in Abidjan for the week. Neil Gordon is the founder and CEO of Global Agricultural Exchange, GAIEX, you can connect with him at GaiaxCoco on Twitter. GaiaX is a blockchain-enabled platform that provides liquidity to cocoa farmers in West Africa. Neil is a former banker, having worked at JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, and KPMG. And honestly, Neil is probably one of the most ambitious people I've met in a while. His goal to disrupt the Ivorian cocoa sector is a breath of fresh air. It's uplifting to meet someone who isn't scared of dreaming big and masters the mechanics of how he'd do so. Cynics, and believe me, the cocoa sector has a few, might say it's pie in the sky, but I think this is the wrong attitude. I survived a year and a half cocoa trading, and I know that the sector does not lend itself to innovation, but as margins for commodities traders gets whittled down, Traders need to boost efficiencies, which blockchain can provide. And Cote d'Ivoire's cocoa sector is known for its problematic supply chain. Whether right or wrong, it is synonymous with child labor and rampant deforestation, which has made chocolate companies more vigilant about their supply chains. All of this to say that a blockchain-enabled solution that could solve the trust issue that plagues cocoa trading is much needed. Neil also had great actionable advice for dealing with VC investors, especially for startup founders of color. So make sure to check out the show notes for all of his great tips. If you're interested in finance, trading, or curious about blockchain, which Neil helps to demystify, this is the episode for you. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Neil Gordon. So Neil, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Victoria. I'm happy to be here and look forward to our conversation. So, Neil, you're based in New York, um, but you're frequently traveling to Cote d'Ivoire as this is your, your major market. And I'm just I'm very happy and fortunate that I was able to catch you while you were in while you were in Abidjan. And I'd love to start off by just giving us some background on yourself. Sure. Okay. The, the traditional background is I started at JP Morgan in mortgage-backed securities trading. I then moved to Deutsche Bank as an ABS, MBS controller. So the idea was my mentor spoke to me and said, uh, you want to run a hedge fund or a bank one day, you can't work in the front office your whole life. You need to learn the whole bank. Uh, From that point, I then moved to uh, KPMG for financial risk management. 
took some time in between because I started a startup. That's when I started to get the itch. And, and uh, that itch never went away, I can tell you that. Uh, and then, then after that, you know, I actually thought I was going to leave uh, finance and took some time and went to the seminary. So I'm actually still a seminary student. And, uh, but then I did an online broadcasting company called NeilTV.net. And then finally, we're here with Gaiax today. So that's my background. <laughs> okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> so um, let, let's get back to your first startup. Like when you described us first getting the entrepreneurial itch, uh, what was that all about? Well, I, I wanted to watch programming online that I couldn't find. And I love martial arts. I love cartoons. I love uh, watching with short films and indie films. I just couldn't find them. And I couldn't find them readily available, uh, as well as news coverage. So, like, my four-man team and I were literally just covering Obama, covering uh, car shows. We were actually doing car hopping shows, hydraulic shows from everything, martial arts tournaments. We were just putting up content. And uh, so it was really, it was a labor of love and it taught me so much about media and broadcasting and uh, so many things that honestly can help me today, but I'm glad I did it. Taught me about the VC space, taught me about investing, taught me about uh, when we did it at that time, the market uh, crashed. And so we had VCs out there that were going to, were interested in the market crashed. We were like, oh no, (laughs) they all backed away. And that was my first real exposure to uh, trying to run up a, a model of just users onto the platform. And I said, I'll never do that again. The next business I do has to be cash flow positive from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And could you elaborate by what you mean by not having a business based on users and, and focusing more on cash? Yeah, because at, at that time, the, you know, the focus was not profitability. The focus was how many users can watch and how many hours of content. So we took our small online content that was doing live streaming plus on-demand of videos of five minutes or less. And they were watching 10,000 hours of video per month. And that was with no advertising. We were just, mm-hmm. we were just like really organically booking things. And uh, the, the VCs were saying, well, you know, it's, it's got to get to Facebook type level you know, where there's users and people watching. So that's what we focused on. We didn't focus on getting advertisers or selling things. We were just focusing on user uh, views and hours and the amount of uh, people that were coming onto the platform signing up. Hmm. That seems like a classic example of a vanity metric. Yes, absolutely. And I think for me today, it's changed the way that I've done Gaius today because when you're thinking about building a business, especially for people of color, uh, there are stats out there that there's less than 2.5% of VC capital that goes into people of color and, and women of color even less. It doesn't matter if they're black, Indian, Chinese, it doesn't matter. It's just people of color. And when I, when I understood that metric, I said, you know, it's possible that we may get funding only one time. And if we get funding only one time, we have to be able to grow organically and be profitable on every trade because no one might interested in Africa, which we found to be true. (laughs) And the ones that are, the rates of return are so astronomical that we've often had to walk away from that uh, because it's just usury at the highest level. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of how we've processed the the difference from user-generated 
content um, experience to we need to make money, <laughs> and, and that's our priority. And then the rest of the things will follow. So explain to us why why Ivory Coast, why why Coco. What what is the connection between you and West Africa? Absolutely. So I think there's a diaspora connection. Uh, I think coming back here as a Jamaican, I was born in Jamaica, and uh, I wanted to go to my country first. And I got sidetracked because uh, the lady at the church said, you've got to listen to the presentation. I work for this government and looking for investors and everything. So I came and I saw the video and I was like, okay, I'm intrigued. Okay. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. gotta, you know, and I've always wanted to come back to the continent one day and, and add value because of the brain dream. And so I came on a trade mission in 2013 and it's like literally just like heard God say, this is where you're supposed to be. And I've been here ever since. And uh, I just saw the need for what I had learned on, in the States to bring it here and to dedicate my time. And I also saw it as a, as a form of ministry because uh, if you know how to do something, and you should dedicate yourself to doing it to better uh, this particular form of humanity. I saw that macro inclusion also meant uh, that they needed to participate in the capital markets. And I didn't see a plan from the government at that time to how they were going to formally uh, participate into the capital markets. How can you be an emerging market when your capital market system isn't as efficient and as rigorous as other places? So from our side in the U.S., we, we saw that firms had no interest in connecting to the space because where's the KYC, where's the compliance? There's no way to validate, to verify. And then we said, okay, this is how blockchain can actually have a real use case. It's here. Because you need trusted, verifiable data. And when you think of West Africa, honestly, you think of the Nigerian scammer. <laughs> the prince, send me money and I'll send you this, you know, if you give me your social. And I said, okay, if there's one thing that blockchain can actually be useful for outside of cryptocurrencies, it's to say, this product is true. This is the origin. These documents are really true documents. And that the, the platform which it's coming through, you can trust that platform and connect to it because... It, it can comply with UK and US standards uh, for trading, and those are the major hubs, right, outside of uh, Hong Kong. And so I said, okay, I have to do this. I had to get on the ground, had to do due diligence. We had lots of failures. We've had lots mm-hmm. of disappointments. Mm-hmm. We did deals that we found out we lost because a Chinese company won, <laughs> and we found out in the paper no one told us. <laughs> All we heard was, yeah, everything's going well. You know, everything's going fine. And we're checking, we're checking. And then we check the paper. Oh, Chinese company does same deal with a little bit better terms. I was like, but wait, aren't those our terms that we gave you? <laughs> so uh, even though it's been a labor of love, I'm not going to say that it, was, it hasn't been a disappointment as well. But I think also what it has done is it taught me a great lesson in terms of failing early and failing often, just like, and that's something that I, I'm, I'm happy to have learned, especially since we did not have any capital at that time at all. <laughs> okay, and, and we'll be returning to a lot of these themes because <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting what you're saying. Um, but first I want to, um, I want to get into, I mean, you, you could have been applying this model to any type of commodity, but you specifically chose cocoa. And, and was that because, 
again, as you described, you know, having this woman come to your church and pre- doing a presentation on Cote d'Ivoire, really persuading you that this is where you wanted to be, and Coco was just a natural part of that? Uh, no, I mean, there's some financial reasons. It's one of the most liquid products that the, the government has here. Um, it also is a big tax contributor as well. And so we said, you know, we whatever GAIAX does, we need to make a GDP impact. Um, we need to actually be able to make something more efficient. And so as we were looking at the cocoa sector, uh, we actually did a loan pricing when we first came, which, which was part of the failure. And what we said was, okay, well, we will... We can raise capital for the, the government. We, we can actually allow you to pay us back in cocoa or any of the commodities that you have because we could monetize it. We didn't need the uh, U.S. dollar or pound or what have you or euros. As we figured, the central bank reserves would be minimal at best to do the deal of that size plus all the other infrastructure deals. Uh, so because that deal failed, I said, well, if I focus on the private sector, I could actually still do this and just lend later or make that market more efficient. And so then we started to look into just doing cocoa directly. And when you're raising capital, you really want to specialize in doing one product first instead of doing multiple products at the same time. Investors mm-hmm. start to say, oh, he's, not con- he's confused or he's not focused. And so we started in cocoa because of the liquidity, the, the market liquidity as well. Uh, obviously, it's not as liquid as oil, but still liquid enough where we could uh, not put a dent in the market by, by trading through the exchange. Okay, so you were actually first interested in, in lending money, and, and because that didn't work out, you then went to Coco because of liquidity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a complete public sector bust for me. Mm. <laughs> I spent about like six to eight months depressed about it and had to have to pick myself back up and you know, lots of prayer, lots of friends encouraging me to kind of push forward. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, so Gaia really was formed out of pain. It was formed out of a failed attempt to to raise capital for the government. That's the one we lost to a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they extended the terms, gave them like zero interest. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no way that I, because we were using um, private equity and some other guys to kind of come in and do the deal. Uh, so it was embarrassing in front of those people uh, that were waiting for a deal. So uh, that's, I think that's the heart of how the firm got started. And then we just started to make it much more efficient, more refining over the, uh, over the years. So we started the Gaia's officially uh, approach in 2014, finding the co-ops, talking to them. What's your need? What do you have challenges with? We went out to Agroville. We met with some farmers there. And uh, the big thing that I saw was there was still, uh, they had 30,000 tons. Maybe they sold 10 or, or close to 10. But they had 20,000 tons of cocoa they never sold. I said, well, wait a second. <laughs> How much inventory is, is being wasted? Started to do some research. I saw that there was just thousands and thousands of tons of cocoa that just wasn't getting sold. Even today, I have farmers texting me small co-ops that have 6,000 tons, 5,000. You buy from us. We have no buyers. You know? and, and for me, my heart just went out because that affects schools. That affects the children going to schools and, and having money for that. And, and at the same time, it's livelihood. These guys are working really hard and they're looking for a place to sell. So that part of my heart reached out, but I said to myself, whatever we do, it has to be profitable and sustainable. The farmer has to make a profit, we have to make a profit, and then the buyers of the product we sell have to make a profit. So how can we structure this where everyone wins versus a zero-sum game, which is typically how markets think. Yeah. And I think that uh, that's our approach to markets, 
uh, we don't use a zero-sum game approach. It's more so, and I think that's where the background of seminary kind of really kicks in. It's how can we grow together as a family? And yes, there are thieves. Yes, there are malicious people in the markets, but that's just a part of life. Uh, we've, we've, we've been robbed from as well. We've, we, we, we trusted a co-op with capital and they took the money and ran. <laughs> so that has happened to me. So I have an official Africa story. Where, <laughs> so I've been hoodwinked and bamboozled. Fortunately, we were able to get it back over some months. Mm-hmm. But uh, we like, wow, okay, that's actually a blessing for us because there is a part of the logistics supply chain that we need to tighten up. So we were able to tighten that up and say, we can't do that anymore. How can we make this better? So Sometimes, again, failing early is good versus failing when you have millions of dollars of investor capital. (laughs) Right. And to to go back to your first failure that was so painful for you, losing this deal to the Chinese, because as you said, honestly, no one can can compete with the Chinese (laughs) because it's really a way for the Chinese government to subsidize their government-owned construction companies and whatnot by giving these concessionary loans at 0%, etc., but how did you handle that conversation with your investors? It was a humbling uh, experience. I think that the, uh, the person that organized it was my mentor of 20 years, who was a managing director at J.P. Morgan, who retired at that time. So I think just going back to him and just letting him know the truth. And of course, he organized it among his relationships in the finance community to, to get it done. And, and, and I've had to eat humble pie many times. But I think what, what's always been best with the humble pie is just telling them, this is what's happened. Uh, I've done everything that I could do to mitigate the risk. But at the end, I lost because, you know, they got zero interest. <laughs> you know, there's, there, there, those guys wouldn't do a deal like that anyway. Uh, so that's how I dealt with it, with them. Um, and after I ate the humble pie, I then went into a cocoon for a few months <laughs> and was just like, what have I done with my life? You know? Because it's reputational risk, right? How many times can you put your name out there and then it be uh, completely uh, stepped on? And I think that's where the faith kind of comes in, because at that point, you've got to keep trusting in God that he's pushing you down the right path, because everything that I've learned in business school, I, I'm doing the opposite, working as an entrepreneur in West Africa. I mean, it doesn't even apply. Yeah. Mm. This is very interesting what you've just said, um, <laughs> because I think there can be such an emphasis on academic education, getting your MBA. I mean, I felt that pressure yeah. where sometimes I ask myself, I ask myself, okay, should, should I go back and get an MBA? Mm. But quite frankly, I really question what I would learn and would that really help me grow a business in sub-Saharan Africa in frontier markets? Because so much of the curriculum is not, it's not geared towards developing, developing markets. So what did you exactly mean by saying almost everything you learned in MBA was the opposite of, of exactly being an entrepreneur in this part of the world? Yeah. So I actually started off in a five-year MBA program at Florida A&M University and I actually left in the four years. So I took took master's courses in finance and everything. I got an offer from J.P. Morgan, so I ran and just took my bachelor's and ran. But I think that the business schools teach you how to be a good manager for a corporation, right? And they teach you how to manage someone else's capital. What it doesn't teach you is how to hustle, how to grind, where to go, how to build political relationships, how to maneuver um, 
the uh, the marketplace, right? Like that's not in a book. <laughs> like, it, it has to be innate in you, internal in you, that where you've been doing something similar to this, or you wake up one day and you say, "I refuse to fail. I refuse to lose." I may fail at small things like small, uh, you know, I guess compared to basketball, like a quarter by quarter, but I'm going to win the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, and that's literally what it is. I wake up every morning and I have to, after prayer or whatever, I say to myself, okay, what are we going to do today to win? Right? Like that, you can't learn that in business school. You can only learn NPV analysis, financial statements analysis. You can learn about capital markets. But when you come to a place where there's no CDS curve, where there's no spot market, there's no foreign market. So how do you value risk? So now you have to figure out how do I price risk where markets don't have any risk instruments? Mm-hmm. That Now that takes financial theory. So I would say that that part of business school helped in terms of thinking things from a theoretical perspective and say, okay, I can hedge my portfolio by focusing on this, this, and this and create a synthetic portfolio by doing it another way. But still, that, that requires an intuitive thought process. And so that took me a few years to think through how can I work in a market with no hedging instruments? And if I do hedge, the price of hedging is above the price of the actual product or the profit of the product. <laughs> so, so you're wasting money and, and, and still be profitable and reduce my risk at the same time. So I think the, the real life work experience at JP Morgan, understanding value of risk or understanding risk capital allocation and, and working with in the, in the public, the private sector and, and working with consulting and clients and then going back and rethinking it. That's what helped me, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and honestly, just saying to myself, how can I do this better? How can I be better than the next person? How can I be 10 steps ahead of my competition before they think about what I'm doing? And then that's really how I approach this market. I never thought of Cote d'Ivoire as uh, a frontier market. I know it is. But I thought about it as what happens one day when this market blows up and it's doing really, really well? How can I position myself for that long-term move? Mm. So I had to look at this market from a private equity, venture capital, hedge fund, banking, all of those things in one and said, if I had to be a firm, how would I do this using all those things and not just one of them? Yeah, no, fascinating. So you're a firm believer in being a first mover then? Absolutely. I think that we like frontier markets. <laughs> we we want to go where people don't want to go. I mean, as long as there's not shellings going on uh, and, and bullets flying by. And when we first got here, there were still some bullet holes in the wall when the army was still in, in the capital. Uh, but just patient, moving along and establishing ourselves and, uh, and pushing forward. We think Africa is a place to be. And we would love to see that the diaspora nations can connect back to the continent through economics. For me, that would be beautiful to see Jamaica buying directly from Cote d'Ivoire. And you asked me earlier, why here? Well, Jamaicans are from West Africa, and most of them are from Akan people. So coming back here, and then my first year, I was able to go to Asim and see the village chief. Looks just like my dad. He's like, you're a lighter version of us. <laughs> so... And it was a surreal moment because I, for the first time, I felt like I was home, even though I was a stranger and didn't speak the language. Oh, that's, that's very moving. <laughs> You're making me blush. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual connection to when you be here. And then at the same time, there is also, I want to contribute back to the continent. And I don't want to be the person that stays over there and only talks about, oh, Africa should do this. 
or, or, or that I want to come to Cote d'Ivoire and say, what am I doing to make a change? And then what will I do to the diaspora in Jamaica one day, I hope, to make a change there as well. Hmm. That was fascinating. And I'd love, um, I'd love for you to explain kind of the mechanisms of GAIAX. Because this is going to be quite a lesson, I think, for our listeners in, in blockchain. And I mean, if anyone's been following the news, particularly in the last year, we've, we, you know, we keep hearing about blockchain, but most, most typically in association with cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to, to understand exactly how it works and how would you apply it to a business, a business like physical commodities trading? Uh, sure. I think I think it's probably one of the best use cases. When I think about blockchain, the first thing I think about um, is the software or the, the software that underpins like crypto. So you have crypto and then you have blockchain underneath it. And it's really just a validation tool. It is a, a database on steroid validation tool and, and, and always trusting and always executing. Hey, is this person really the right person? So when you're talking about physical commodity, we said to ourselves, okay, as I mentioned earlier, this is a real use case situation where when you have, uh, let's take a cocoa example, from the bush to the warehouse, the cocoa board is at the warehouse inspecting with, let's say, SUV. They're there and they're checking the bags, SUVs checking the bags, SUV is a, uh, a cleaner here in Cote d'Ivoire, and, uh, and then I'm there also, right? And so if I'm a trader in New York or London, well, how do I know that the, the cocoa board representative is really the same one that the cocoa board sent there or just some guy named, you know, Kwame or mm. uh, Kone who's, <laughs> who's signing off, right? Mm. And, and what we're saying is that with the blockchain, that only the cocoa board representative who is assigned to this warehouse that's certified by GAIX can actually sign the certificate. So when he signs that certificate, we know that this cocoa has been validated by the right source. And once it has been validated, like, so we have these nodes that the, the cocoa passes through the supply chain, right? Every piece of the supply chain, the cleaning is a node. When it hits that node, where the right people signing off, check, green light comes on, goes to the next node, goes to Bollery, to the warehouse. Did Bollery, the person that is assigned to this warehouse, to this account, with, with the exact authentic identification, sign off on it? Yes, they did. It continues in the supply chain. Now, so from a KYC side, when, he, when the trader goes to his compliance and he says, do you know your customer? Yes, I do. My customer has been validated through the entire supply chain because what they gave me for compliance exactly matches what I can search through in the private blockchain. So what we're looking at is a public-private ledger where some things are private, where there's a key to the trader where only he can search the transactions, but say, let's say the volume and the things that are being done are public to the customer. And so when you think of blockchain, you can say to yourself, let's say it's a super database. It's a super secure database where only the parties with the right keys can actually unlock the information. And then only the persons that are allowed to write to that node can come in and change that information. And they can only do it one time. Once they sign off, it's immutable. It can't be changed. Oh, okay. Because I thought that you can never change uh, information once because in the way, 
when I was reading about blockchain, you know, it's it's a distributed ledger. So instead of being in one centralized processor, it's it's divided amongst many many different computers. So anyone, so there's not a central authority. But I thought that for each person that is accessing the information, they have a key, and once that information, um, which or an entry, which is like a block. Then it can no longer be changed. Exactly. I mean, I'm, you're, you're, we're saying the same thing different ways. Okay. So, so if the Cocoa Board, going back to that example, he has the uh, the right to write on the ledger, but only for that node. He mm. cannot touch any other nodes or sheet. And once he touches that node, he can't change it. He cannot go back and falsify the data. And in fact, if he goes back and changes it, there's a record that says he signed it here. But he went back and changed it, and then there's another immutable record there. Mm-hmm. So then now the person can question, hey, why did you make this change here versus throwing away the documentation? And so he can't affect anybody else on the supply chain unless he has authorization. And that authorization is going to be straight down to the actual, uh, let's say, the uh, device level. Does the chip actually comply with the chip that we've assigned to mm-hmm. this particular person? So, so no one can even impersonate that person on the blockchain. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for clarifying <laughs> that. No problem. So, how kind of what is the real what is the real power of using blockchain to uh, to, to to trade cocoa? What is what are you looking to achieve? Sure. Um, the, the idea here is if we can bring transparency, validation to to one product, then we can actually start to do block trades, much larger transactions of trust to people who typically when you're in a Western country, most of your research is done by computer. You rarely come to the ground here, right? You do your computer research first and you do all this data analysis, then you want to send someone to the ground. So if we're able to generate tick data information that's trusted and verified, they can do research. So now we can connect to JP Morgan's. We can connect to Goldman's. We can connect to all those larger institutions that want to trade and say, hey, I want to buy $100 million of cocoa and, and not worry about uh, if the cocoa is true. Again, I keep coming back to the trusted, verifiable resource. What GAIAX does is build trust. And that trust can translate into larger volumes and larger transactions. And if we can do larger volumes and transactions, that's more tax revenue for the country. Um, that's more sales for the farmers. That's better for everyone. And it's better for the, the larger suppliers that are here as well because they can do more block volume. And so, so the long-term goal for me is how can we do what the Chicago Mercantile Exchange did for farmers in the Midwest here? What the Ethiopian Exchange is doing over there in terms of increasing uh, efficiency, liquidity, volume, and, and just making food more of an efficient way to move around. How can we do inter-country trade where we can settle transactions instead of in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, in, in one day or less? Because all the documents are there and you don't have to verify by doing faxes and calling. You already have it right there and we can digitally settle every transaction. Okay. And... I mean, being in commodities myself for, you know, over five years, partly in research and then kind of on the physical trade side for a year and a half, what you appreciate is that it's just a lot of movement of cash and that farmers, whether they're farming, yeah, cashew nuts or cocoa, coffee, any type of cash crop, they want payment 
pretty much on delivery. So how is GAIAX going? How kind of what is the strategy for, for pre-financing or just or the movement of cash? How is that going to work? Yeah, so right now, unfortunately, we're still papering trades right now. But going forward, what we're going to be doing is partnering with some local banks and some other firms that are working on the continent. Um, once we have that signed, we're going to release that on the website uh, to do uh, digital payments through those banks. So we'll sign up those farmers initially through pilots. And once they deliver, we literally, Coco's checked, it's been verified, it's good, same day payment. So now we don't, uh, one of the things that I saw that farmers were getting robbed in the bush and also killed. I heard stories, sad, told to me by people who, the others who didn't make it. And then people who showed me bullet wounds or stab wounds. I was like, this is ridiculous. Why are people, you know, for, 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 for a few dollars, you know? And uh, so I said, if we can change this, then we've also made a significant impact. So we're like, okay, there's a social impact side of GAIAX that we don't talk about much. But for me, this is life. Like, I don't feel like people should be killed over money. It doesn't make sense to me personally. I don't, I don't think people should be killed at all, but, you know, in, in certain respects, but, but not for this. <laughs> uh, so, so, we, so that's also the drive for me as well. Can we get funds in hand faster? And then I also saw that a lot of children were missing school come September mm-hmm. uh, with the cocoa and coffee because uh, funds were not coming in time. So they get a voucher. And maybe months later, they would get paid for the cocoa they sold today. So we have to change that. And so with the blockchain, now this becomes interesting because let's say that we're able to uh, get those vouchers digitized from all these firms, Olam, whoever. Then we can trade those assets, right? Because you can actually transfer the ownership rights of those assets, similar to like a securities in the U.S. with digital uh, the DTC, if you remember, I don't know if you're familiar with DCC, but uh, no, uh, not, but no. they settle all of the securities in, in digital form. So the Depository Trust Corporation, Depository Trust Clearing Corporation is what we call it there. And so Goldman can trade a bond from JP Morgan to multiple customers and it can switch hands 20 times a day. But when the interest payment comes in, it knows where to go. Because it's just following in that digital footprint. I think that was the real true fi- uh, financial in- innovation was digital trend of the DTC Corp. So we'll do the same thing here. So now the, the, the farmer says, hey, I don't want to wait for this. Uh, you know, can, can I sell you my invoice? Hey, sure, I'll sell you the invoice. <laughs> I'll buy it from you. I'll give you the cash today. And then one day when, when Cargill or Alam pays that invoice, we just forwarded the payment to the right person who was supposed to receive that. And that's going to take time, but that's what blockchain can do. Because blockchain can validate that this payment must go to that person and that the, the, the transfer of ownership is actually true and it's sound. Hope that wasn't boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, fascinating. So is that like a form of factoring, kind of trading when you trade invoices? No, I, I would say it's a real sale, right? Because mm-hmm. when you, the, the payment comes in, a, like say, 5, 10 days, 30 days. It would similarly be be, uh, when you sell a bond between interest payments, Mm -hmm. right? You have to account for the days of interest that don't belong to you. They belong to someone else. And so you have the clean price, dirty price. And so it's similarly here. Like you have a a clean price would be that you get 100%. But if I have to wait for that cocoa, then maybe that trader says, okay, well, I'll pay you 98% because I have to wait 30 days to get that payment back. 
And the farmer says, absolutely, <laughs> I'll take the 98% because I can do volume and I can make up that difference. So same thing as, as any other security, the time value of money. And I think that's, of course, that's where business school kicks in to remind mm. you. you. You have to remember the time value of money. You can't just give something away for free. So where are you now with GAIAX? What is, um, because it's still doing something that is so innovative and so disruptive in, in, to, in a sector which is, quite frankly, not known for innovation and can be, maybe not, I mean, because with any disruption, you're obviously, there, there can be winners and there can be losers. But, so doing something that's so advanced, um, particularly in a market like Cote d'Ivoire, where are you, are, are you still kind of at concept stage when are you looking to, 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 to roll out the platform? Sure. Uh, so September is our launch of the direct platform. We're going to be doing that during the UN General Assembly Week. We're going to be doing it with a couple of countries. So Ivory Coast, Cameroon, uh, and someone else we haven't confirmed yet. <laughs> uh, so the, the direct and mobile platform will launch. We've already signed with NASDAQ for a design study to begin. So we'll begin the design study of the matching engine later. And, of course, we'll build a blockchain in-house. So the, the full trading platform will be ready in September. And that's just a few months away. So uh, engine, software engineers are grinding away right now. We're going back and forth. The design and the visualization of it completed. So now we're just making all the moving parts work. And so when you think of what customers will have, they'll actually have like a full Bloomberg-like product for sub-Saharan Africa. Take data, news, video, content what's going on in markets. And we're going to have a full rollout of, of getting news locally. What are the pH levels in the soils in different regions? Right? You'll, be able to, you'll be able to see which affects taste and quality. So now you'll get real product differentiation. If you want organic, well, it's certified organic, and the blockchain can verify that Rainforest did certify this, this particular co-op or these particular farmers. And we know it's true because it's a vendor, they're a vendor on our platform. So you have a marketplace of marketplaces there where suppliers can come in, bid for services, offer services, because we're saying, look, we can't do it by ourselves. <laughs> People who specialize in logistics, this is your opportunity. Come in. Because when we send orders to the farmers and they say, hey, we need a pickup, we send you that Uber order, you pick it up, you drop it off, it's validated, you get paid. Just like you would in an AfriCab situation. <laughs> okay? So let's, let's just... You know, there's some things that work. So let's take those things that work and apply them into our space, make it more efficient, more convenient for farmers. And so farmers are not traveling all the way from the west side, all the way to Abidjan just to deliver product. Let's let's put some warehouses around. And if they can deliver to our warehouses that are certified, then they should get paid on the spot. Why do they need to wait? Because it's, that's the asset. We have the asset in place. So I think that the, the platform is ready to roll in September. We, we, working with the Cocoa Board, and hopefully they will continue to work with us uh, you know, for a two-year rollout. Uh, we hope that they would uh, like what we, we offer to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's going to be beneficial for the business sector, because once those prices are in for spot prices, we'll be able to offer derivatives uh, so they can hedge the local Cocoa price against the London price. Oh, you are an ambitious man, <laughs> <laughs> I know that you know, sometimes I have to scratch my own head um, because it's a lot. And some days it does stress you a little bit, but I think that it's worth it. And if you're going to do real change, if you're going to make a real difference, then why not shoot for the stars on this? 
if you fail, I said to myself, if I fail, I want to fail so gloriously that everyone knows. Like, it's like, that guy failed so bad. They talk about it for years. And I'll say, I was the best failure ever. <laughs> so. But I love that. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love people who, who think big and, you know, it's like dream big. Yeah. So it's uh, developing a comprehensive platform that can yeah. address the logistics, the quality issues better price discovery, improving prices for farmers. I mean, I love that. I mean, I think it's, you know, I'm I'm really excited to see how it develops. Yeah. And and this sounds really odd, but our real validation is the country. So in our minds, we're not just validating the cocoa sector. We're trying to validate the country as a model for deploying to front other frontier markets. If the GAIX platform can work here, then we can roll it out into any frontier market anywhere in the world. And, and that's kind of how we look at it. So when sometimes VCs talk to us and like, you know, what's your validation? I was like, it's on the country level. We're, we're looking to be macro movers, but we have to understand the microeconomics of the market as well. And if you think about it, if we get that fully in place, guess what? We can now leverage sovereigns because we can lend to the governments and they can pay us back in cocoa. Mm. <laughs> Again, very ambitious. I, very I, ambitious. I, I like it. <laughs> I, I see that. I see that when I'm around fifty. I'm thirty-eight today, so I'm, I'm, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But if I'm fifty-eight, twenty years from now, I think we could see something like that. Again, yeah, it's yeah, wonderful to hear. And when I was researching your background, you know, um, you know, something that was quite interesting to see is that GaiaX has participated in an accelerator in New York. Yes, that is working specifically with founders um, who are people of color, people, as, as you said from the very beginning, you know, people who really struggle mm-hmm. to get early stage funding. And um, describe to us kind of what that experience was like. Yeah, it was under uh, Chike Okebu. He's a dynamic, awesome guy, very brilliant guy. He's from Nigeria, actually. You know, his story is interesting. And when I came to New York, I think that what the accelerator really helped me to see was that venture capitalists don't actually do venture investing. And I was able to learn that quickly. And it saved me so much time. Startup 52 taught me about the VC world in a way that I never understood before even being a finance professional. You assume you have a great idea, you're going to change the world, VCs want to throw money at you. No, it's the opposite, right? VCs only want to throw money at you if other VCs are throwing money at you. This is like, and, and, and then we've also found that most of them cannot take the lead. They need someone else to take the lead because their mandates say that they have to wait for a lead investor. And so we would get offers, but, you know, still trying to find a lead investor was very, very difficult. Uh, so and then we also noticed that most venture capital was only focused on Silicon Valley ideas or going out west. And then that there was a differentiation between the way New York VC thought versus uh, San Francisco folks versus London folks. And you have to, there's so much BS. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much BS in the VC space that at one point I just got disgusted. But I think the one thing that I'll tell um, entrepreneurs is that don't approach VCs like you're looking for. The thing that changed it for GAIAX for us, and we didn't get any VC funding, but what changed it was we started to approach them and say, you need us. You need me more than I need you because you need deal flow. You need deal flow. And 
I actually have a product. I had one VC from Ghana laugh at me and say, you'll never get any money from Africa. You're wasting your time. And I said, I'm glad to know what you really think. And I walked out. And uh, I had other VCs approach me and telling me different things. And you have to, you have to own your stuff. And so I'd have to, the thing that entrepreneurs sometimes do is that, you know, they're just, they're looking for the VC to be the savior. And what I'm saying is build the best product, build the best service, and they will come running after you. And, and for me right now, like I've spoken to VCs and they're like, they, they want me to jump through hoops. And I says, look, I'm going to do it. But just so you know, I'm not waiting on you. So if you decide that you're interested, you know how we make money. My thing now is after two or three meetings with a VC, if they still don't know if they want to invest in you, move on. Mm-hmm. Move on. Because they, uh, most often, if they've never done a deal in your space, they can't do it anywhere. And they're trying to figure out how. And you don't have the time to wait that long. And so, so Startup 52 taught me that. You know, just, just how to actually weed out VCs that were not pertinent and focused on what you do. Uh, and, and so I, I got into a meeting one time and I said, listen, I'm only here because uh, you're interviewing all of my classmates, but you're not actually focused on what I do, but I just wanted to introduce myself. And maybe if you had some referrals, I'd be happy to take them. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I want to hear about you. We, you know, we, we, everything. And I told them what I do and everything. And they're like, oh, you're right. I can't even touch you. I said, I know, because I, I studied you before you got here. So for me as a startup, I'm looking at the VC and I'm saying, how can, is, is this VC even in my space? And that's how you know to approach them. So sometimes entrepreneurs don't get callbacks because guess what? That VC has no, they may be in ed tech, education technology, mm-hmm. and you're in agricultural fintech, GAIX. There's no way they can help you. So I, you know, I had to, I had to learn how to screen quickly. And I think Startup 52 in three months, I was rejected by over 300 firms in three months. That's funding. Yeah, that's how much I was grinding. I mean, and, and you know, Chike laughed and he says, you know, you might go down as having the most rejections. <laughs> and I said, no, this is great because now I know who the players are. Now I know who's actually serious. Now I know who actually can fund what I'm doing. And now I know how to plan and structure my company and that my original thought was right. I have to be profitable because the place where I'm going, no one else wants to go. But the reward has got to be great. Mm. Okay, again, a lot to unpack here. So my first question is how you, you, you said that VCs in San Francisco are different than VCs in New York as opposed to VCs in London. Kind of what are, what are main differences you've encountered kind of amongst uh, VCs? Sure. New York VCs want cash flow. They want notes that are going to pay interest. They want to see how you're going to make money. Yeah, they like the user story. But if you don't make money, New York VCs are not interested. The VCs out West, they want to hear the highest pie in the sky story, how you're going to grow the business, how you're going to spend money. Okay, New York investors don't want to hear that. New York is, is an animal where it's like, you know, and again, it's the culture of New York. We're here to grind. We're here to make money. And, and so I, I kind of see that the VCs in the uh, West are a little bit more, uh, I would say, in a bubble. But the VCs in London oftentimes are having uh, offices in both places anyway, so they kind of follow a similar model. I think they may be a little bit more uh, globally minded, uh, but still that their, their concentration risk is, is still in London. So they kind of tend to lean towards the New York 
guys for uh, support. Uh, but again, they're completely different from the New York space in that respect. So if, if you're approaching a VC in New York, you really have to understand the, the model of how you make money. In San Francisco and out west, not as critical. But so often in sub-Saharan Africa, you have to have, well, no, I mean, categorically in sub-Saharan Africa, these are frontier markets. So a lot of people like yourself are positioning yourself for the long term. And so being able to make money, it's not a question of three years or five years. It could be more 10, 15 years. It's Mm -hmm. very long term. So how do you, in, in your experience, how do you find an investor that sees kind of the long-term potential and can be a source of patient capital? Uh, I, I don't have an answer for that, to be honest. The only answer that I have is, for Gaiax, is that we have to be profitable on every trade. So if I do a cocoa trade, I have to have a spread. And it has to be today, it can't be tomorrow, because I don't have that much time. And mm-hmm. every transaction I do, I'll do it by, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I have to wait 15 years for payment with no access to capital, Series A, B, I never even got a proper angel round. Mm-hmm. So all the capital that we've taken in from friends and family, or we've had some hard money, 30-day loans, 90-day loans, we have to figure out how we're going to generate returns to pay those folks back. Like, we don't... We don't have time to think about those things. If someone came in and gave me an A round and said, like, oh, here's $10 million, go and run. We can flip that to $100 million in two years because we had to think so much about making money and how to survive. And I think that's the difference with uh, people of color because they have no choice. They actually have to figure out how do I survive. And thus their firms can be, their firms are more focused on profit versus how many users I because they don't know when they're going to get money. And the low, and banks will not give startups capital. It's just mm-hmm. not happening. The ADB does not invest in startups. And that's something that startups have to know. I mean, they have a marketing campaign, but the, the African Development Bank does not, does not invest in startups. They give money to other VC firms that don't invest in startups. VC firms most often act like private equity. And that means that you have to have two, three years of balance sheet before they're like, okay, we're interested in, you know, coming to take 10% for 5 million. A VC comes to me in five years and I do 100, 200, $300 million. I'm not giving up 5%. You know, you're going to have to come with a billion dollars of capital because we, you know, and, and I also see that uh, people of color are, are looking about scalability. They're looking at solving problems on the continent. I know several entrepreneurs in Cote d'Ivoire alone who have uh, multi-billion dollar ideas, but they can't get access to capital, mm-hmm. as well as some of the other parts of the continent as well. Um, they're struggling to, and, and I know those who are even further along than me in validation, customers, clients, signing people up, they have business partners, and they still can't get access to capital. So that, that I think that that is not, it may sound horrible, but it makes us stronger. It makes us more resilient against turmoil and we can weather storms, I think, better in terms of seeing the silver lining. So what advice would you give African entrepreneurs who have an idea, they have idea validation, and maybe they're able to bootstrap up into a certain point, but in order to scale, they need to have, they need to have funding. What, what would you tell them? 
Uh, I would say that if they can get into certain accelerators that are beneficial to them, please do it because they'll just get more exposure to VCs. And, and there's a lot of global accelerators going on all over the place now. It seems to be the rage <laughs> to be an accelerator. So I would say that's a really good start. Second, if you, you someone in your community knows someone that can write a check, right? Uh, and trying to get in front of them and showing them that, look, I've made a little bit of money, but if I could get 250 or 500,000, I can make a whole lot more. Think about profitability. Think about your customer. And, and you need a champion. You need someone that's going to champion your, your firm. So don't just pick people based on money. Pick people that can speak on behalf of guidance. So there's a, you can have advisors. You can have board members that you can give some equity to. Uh, allow them to come in 50 basis points or half of 1% or a quarter of a... And, and let them be a part of your story. The, the more people telling your story, the better. I actually was doing Uber in Miami and South Florida. And I was pitching my firm to everybody that asked me, what do I do outside of Uber? Because I was trying to make money to survive. And I was like, I believed in the dream so much. I was like, I refuse to take a job you know, because I got to work on this business. And so people would ask me and I had lawyers, I had bankers come in there and I would say, this is what I do. So tell me what you do. And I was just perfecting my pitch. Every time, right? So like every time I'm perfecting my pitch and I looked at it, like, I never know there's going to be that person. It could be a guy, it could be a woman, it could be someone sitting in the back that just looks like a normal person. And they're like, oh, I work for a sovereign wealth fund. Here, you know, I'd love to do that. Or I work in Africa. And I've received a lot of leads from that. They didn't materialize, but I got a lot of leads from it. And I think that, you know, you always got to be ready because you just never know who you're sitting in front of. And you never know who that person knows. And, and I think that with the, the enthusiasm that the entrepreneur has, the passion that they have, you still have to plan for the opportunity because mm-hmm. you don't know when it's going to come. And that's what I thought about every day. That's what made me work 40, 50 hours driving people back and forth because I said one of these customers could be my investor. I don't know who it is, <laughs> but one of them could be. And, uh, and I've just patiently waited that way. And to this day, I take every meeting. Anyone who wants to talk to me, I take them. Anyone emails me, I make the time. And it may not go anywhere, but they're like, wow, that guy's amazing. Or I know about Guy X. And uh, one day they'll be like, hey, I remember talking to him. Or I remember talking to her. And uh, that has been beneficial to me as well. I have not been afraid to tell my story. And I have not been afraid to share what Guy X really does. Because I was like, if this is for me, there's no one that can take it. right? Mm-hmm. And that's a part of the faith journey. It's like, I, I got to put my stuff out there. You don't want to put all of your trade secrets in your pitch deck, but you need to have something with meat in it. And it needs to be professionally done. You need to find someone that's really good in graphic design to tell your story and to write that story because the first thing that a VC sees is the deck. And if you can visually display that and it's congruent and it, it flows through Perfect. You need a large deck, a medium deck, and a short deck. And you always need to be tweaking that all the time. And always ask them, what is it you're looking for? You know, it's like, I have a lot of things. Are you looking for a short, medium? And let them talk to you. If they're willing to take a coffee with you, go meet with them. Because really, they're just trying to see if they can work with you long term. Mm -hmm. If they like your space, the next thing they want to know is, how does this person manage difficulties? And they can only find that through the relationship building. Unfortunately for me, because of my location, I've had VCs say, I'd love to give you money. I'd write you the check today, but I can't invest in West Africa. Mm. 
it's just not my focus and it's too much risk. And so, and once you have that clairvoyant, just really raw conversation, you thank them. It says, hey, and they may say, but I know someone I think you should talk to. That's solid gold. Because getting a soft introduction, yeah. that, is, that is gold. Because it, the, the, the cold calling, the hard, the hard introduction is very difficult. But for a VC to pick up the phone and call his colleague and say, hey, you got to talk to this guy. I mean, he's totally crazy. He wants to be in Africa. But you got to talk to him and hear his story because I've just never heard anything like this. And I've had them do that to me. And I literally take... I've had one VC said, this is too good to be true. I want to invest, but I can't do it just because it's too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, fine, no problem, but at least I know how you feel. And one day when we blow up, and I like to send out emails, you know, ask them, can I send you some emails once a month about our progress, right? VCs like to see momentum. If you're mm-hmm. doing things, you, you're, you know, when we saw you the last time, what have you done since then? Mm-hmm. Spoke to someone last month and they're like, what have you done? I've done this, 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 this. And I'm like, what? How did you? And that was exactly their response. And I was like, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> you thought I'd be home be like, you know, worrying about. And, I, and a lot of those things I did with no money. And so when I say faith, there have been times that I've, in the past, that I've come to Cote d'Ivoire and not knew how I was going to get back to the U.S. I bought a one-way ticket. Mm-hmm. I had just enough money. Um, and one of my friends said to me, is this the first time you've been to Cote d'Ivoire where you actually know you can go back home? I was like, yeah, actually it is. And I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. So when you believe in something, you know, they got to see that. And, and, and you got to, you're talking about taking risks and it's like putting myself on the line, talking to the Cocoa board, I had to be transparent with them. Hey, I'm in the process of raising capital. Uh, talking to lenders and bankers. Hey, this is all I have. But my knowledge about the market, my understanding of the transaction and structuring, now that is solid. That's from the banking days. And I said, no, this kid knows what he's talking about. He really just doesn't need the capital to do it. And all of the infrastructure is in place. So I think when an entrepreneur comes to an investor, they've got to be solid. You have to know your market and you have to know any question that's asked. At the drop of a dime, you've got to be ready to answer. I love that tip about the, the frequent updates on, on your progress and, and checking in with, yeah. with VCs. That's, that's a brilliant tip. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that I think that was taught to us through the accelerator. Their job is to screen deals. And they see momentum, they can't deny it because they got to go back to their, uh, you know, their limited partners and, say, and, and respond to them and say, yeah, yeah, they sent us, but we ignored it. So they're going to be like, did you not see this? No, we met with them, but we didn't think it was a good investment. They can only do so many of those <laughs> before people take capital away from them. Uh, so I think also it, it, it holds them accountable, but... But I have heard from VCs, they will take a coffee with anyone that asks. So please ask and take a coffee first before you send the deck. The coffee first or tea or whatever you like is important so they can have some context for what they're reading because the deck can't tell the story. The owner, the founders, they have to tell the story and they have to see the passion because when things go bad, they want to know that you're not going to and that's the biggest thing that they're looking for because majority of the firms that they invest in are going to bust. They just want to know you're not going to quit. And at this point of the show, I, I want to pivot and talk about kind of your general thoughts on entrepreneurship and any advice. Well, what advice you have to aspiring African entrepreneurs? And the first thing I want to ask is 
what are free resources that you can recommend if our listeners want to learn more about blockchain? Ah, uh, Google. <laughs> Google is absolutely the best place to start. I mean, just put in blockchain, you'll just get a whole list of ideas. In New York, they have meetups. So if, if you know if they're in the New York space, there's blockchain meetups that are happening in New York. There are blockchain meetups happening in London and, and, and California. But also, start your own meetups where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Have people bring information about blockchain ideas. Look at BitPacer that's doing stuff over there with blockchain. Mm-hmm. Start like analyzing what people are doing in the changes and, and just talking amongst each other because I think that the, the iron sharpens iron, right? So you're able to share what you found. And I think that when you're thinking about the meetups, you really need to be inclusive, right? When you're talking about uh, technology. Women think differently from men for a reason. If you don't have women in your meetups, you're missing out because the way that they're going to look at the market intuitively is different from the way that you think, right? So like for me personally, as a founder, I make sure that like, okay, like, wait a second, there's too many men here. We're going to fail, <laughs> you know, like, like literally because, because we, we think a certain way, right? Like men, like, yeah, the testosterone starts to build up. You're a big, and you know, so, so like my general counsel is a woman, my head of marketing is a woman, you know, and my head of um, public relations is a woman. And then we have, well, maybe my CFO is a man and, but, uh, or operations is a man. But for me, I'm like, I need diverse thought. So if, if we think back to the accelerator, one of the other things that maybe I thought about diversity before, but I think that the accelerator really helped me to see that if I'm not divor- uh, diverse in my board, in my my circle, there's a possibility of failure, and I don't want to fail. And so for me, it's it's about not just you know male or female; it's backgrounds, experience, uh, thought processes. My general counsel is much older, than me, right? My head of operations is older than me for a reason, and um, you know my director of marketing worked at GlaxoSmithKline uh, as the, the global head for Africa. I want people in the spot that are better than me at this to be successful. And I think founders have to be comfortable picking people that are better than them at those positions. Because when you want to scale, you don't want to micromanage that unit. You want to be able to plant the vision and run. And so VCs are going to be looking at you as a founder. Can you pick a good team? Can you pick a team that's not only going to support you, but catapult you when you put this capital to work? And, you know, when, when you're talking about that, it, it's almost like any sport, you're, you're, whether you're male or female, you, you're going to have some players that, that can't always pull their weight. But as a team, can you win? And, and, and that's how I look at GAIAX, that we're working here. We want local partners. We want local hires because that's a part of our teamwork. And also, when you're talking about diversity and, and payments, as founders, if you're paying someone in the U.S. 75 grand for the same position, you need to factor that payment in for Africa, right? You, you, that, that, they're doing the same work. They're doing the mm-hmm. same skill. And so that's one thing that's important for us is that the vice president in New York should make the same amount as the vice president in Cote right? There should not be a huge pay differential because if I invite them to New York for a conference and they can't even pay for their hotel because it's not enough for the market – then I'm not really changing the dynamic of the market that I'm working in. And I think, uh, you know, those are the things that we think about. So the, the entrepreneur here in Africa, don't get caught up in the hype, right? Be the change agent, be the leader. 
And you have to, yes, you have to structure according to your balance. You don't pay the more than you're paying yourself. The other thing is pay yourself if you get funding. It's something so hard for me. It's like, it's, it's a hard thing. I have to like, ah, I, I, you know, I don't want to pay myself because I'm thinking about all the things that need to be done. You have to pay yourself and you have to factor that into the budget. The other thing that I've heard from VCs is, is that they see that the entrepreneur is paying themselves too little. They're less likely to do the trade. Oh, that's a, that's a red flag. Yes, it's a red flag because if you're living in New York, you have $5 million in funding and your salary is 55000 They want to know why are you paying yourself so little because if your personal life is falling apart, then you won't be able to run the company. So you need to be paid commensurate with the funding and the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you've only received 300,000, then yes, (laughs) you know, they might question 55 because that's all you have, but it just depends on what you're doing. And I'd love to know what were the last couple of books that you read that left an impression on you? Oh man, there's a book that a guy, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was a guy in Silicon Valley. And I don't, I just don't remember the name but it was a VC. He had uh, done some startups and it just kind of walked through. I'll send it to you if I find it uh, back in New York, but kind of walked through the ups and downs. He went from startup to ITO and he did an ITO during the worst time and the market crashed and he had to fire people, hire people. And you've got to be prepared for that. So if there are stories you can read in, in other books and I try to for me, I try to talk to other entrepreneurs as my book. What's going on with you guys? How's your fundraising? What VCs are you talking to? What's the real time? So I kind of use the news, the dynamic news. And if someone recommends a book, I'll, I'll pick it up. But most of my stuff is talking to other entrepreneurs in the space. Mm-hmm. And I try not to talk to people in the same space I'm in. I try to get a flavor of all the markets and say, okay, she's having or he's having trouble in a completely different market for funding. That means that there's really no funding right now, period, because they're in a completely different sector and they're also having challenges receiving funding. Okay, that's a great yeah, that's a great tip. And I'll if if you send me the title of that book later, I can include it in the show notes, but no pressure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so what is the best re- advice that you've ever received as, um, as an entrepreneur? Uh, the best advice, I would say, besides transparency, I would say is, is to be ready. I heard it over and over again. Um, but I heard that when I was a child. So it was the five Ps, proper planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's stuck in my head from high school and from the mentor that I had there, and they were alphas that mentored me. I was a part of Men of Tomorrow in high school. And they always just say to me, it's like, Neil, proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Don't ever forget that. And hopefully they know that I haven't forgotten it. And so, so every day I'm thinking about, have I thought through this though? Have I thought of all the possible ways I could blow this up? If I have put everything out on the table and it still fails, I'm like, okay, I didn't think of that. And now I have to tweet and go back. So, so for me, to it's like it's a battle. Like you're preparing for war, and the war is your firm. Your firm is trying to survive. Your firm is trying to make a name among brands that have been established for eons. You know, if you're in the services business and you're trying to compete against a services business like KPMG, 
you better be ready because people know that brand. They can see the symbol. They recognize that symbol. It's a global symbol like Coca-Cola. So I think back to that's where sometimes the, the theoretical knowledge of business who comes in, marketing, pricing, placement, positioning of your brand. How do I do that? Recognizing that I am the brand. Everything that I say, everything that I do, every place that I go, people are looking at me. VCs are seeing, well, what's they, they ask around, what's this guy like? You know, uh, has he had any difficulties? Has he challenges? And you, if you don't have a good name, <laughs> you need to figure out how you're going to get a good name. And you also have to, uh, to think about your brand. Brand management doesn't start after funding. It starts before you get funding. It starts the moment you think of an idea that you want to do, you have to start being a brand. And what is your brand? <laughs> My brand is, is helping countries and farmers be inclusive into the world markets, efficiently, profitably, and sustainably over the long term. And if people no longer see Neil and they see the GAIX logo, and they can get that, that this is a one-click solution for ag trading, and if you could go anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa, obviously besides Cote d'Ivoire, uh, to learn and grow your business, where would you go and why? Not just so many. <laughs> First, I want to say wherever a farmer is, we want to be. Yeah. So that's all of sub-Saharan Africa, all the 36 countries. But I would love to go to Nigeria. I'd love to go into mm-hmm. that market. Can I give you another one? Of course. <laughs> Uh, dying to get to Cameroon, Sierra Leone. After what happened in Sierra Leone, I've been trying to figure out how could we get there to help. How could we? Yeah. And to do? Do you mean? Um, do Do you mean the war? Do you mean the Ebola crisis? Yeah, Ebola, and and just the economy collapsing. And I'm saying to myself, man, you know, there's a need for GAIX there because I spoke to the minister, the previous minister of agriculture. They have all this rice, but they can't sell it in bulk. It's like, hey, we can do that. And so it's just Sierra Leone has rice. Ghana has tomatoes. But Nigeria had a tomato shortage. If Gaius was in place, Nigeria could have just bought tomatoes from us through Ghana to deliver to them properly without having memes out of people crying when they were doing a tomato fight in Italy. You know, <laughs> it's like they're wasting this food. So I, I, those, are, those are the places that we, we'd love to be in. Uh, and then, of course, the other, other populations. Well, Nigeria is just a huge opportunity. Yeah. If you had a billion dollars, which sector in Sub-Saharan Africa would you invest in and why? I'd still invest in agriculture. Absolutely. I'd still invest in agriculture. I think it's worth it. And then what we could do with a billion dollars in ag, I mean, we could really transform the space. Without question, that's my first thing. I think that it, it is for us a natural hedge. It's a natural hedge is to be in ag, agriculture. And I think that the, the farmers deserve better. They are the ones that feed us. They're the ones that keep bankers alive, lawyers, and everyone alive. So how can we not necessarily pay homage, but make them a part of the professional class? That being a banker is, is sexy. But to, to be able to come to a meeting and say, no, I farm corn. Wow, you farm corn. Like, that's so amazing. Like, what do you have? Like, bicolor, like, tricolor. What's going on? To, to have that kind of conversation where folks get excited about someone who's farming and it's like, oh, what kind of transformation? Oh, yeah, so we're using the husk now to make clothing. That's, that's the idea that we wanted to get in people's minds that, you know, if we really invest in the space, we can actually make our lives cleaner, greener, 
less carbon you know, usage, more carbon friendly. Uh, we can have more green energy. We can have a better breathing environment. And, and, and we don't have to lose our comforts in the process. So there's GAIA's one billion still goes to agriculture. Does not go to fixed income yet. Mm-hmm. Ag is still number one. Well, I'm glad to hear it as someone who's, you know, has spent the last five years um, studying, kind of working in agriculture in West Africa. And to, to wrap up, mm-hmm. if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, yeah. what would it be? Take the risk. Take the risk. If you thought about it, um, typically in Jamaican culture, similar to uh, or Caribbean culture, I'll just say this, there's only five careers that you can choose from. <laughs> Doctor, lawyer, engineer, teacher, and maybe a preacher, depending accountant? on... Yeah, accountant. Yeah, <laughs> CPA or something. It, you know, one of those is acceptable, right? And if you've got something burning in your heart so much, you're going to have to be strong enough to ignore your parents. You know, when they're telling you, I worked this whole life for you to be a clown, to be, you know, to go out there and do foolishness. You've got to believe in your dream. That's really going to show you the grit. You, you, you're going to have to stand up for yourself if you're going to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I had family members praying for me that I'd get a real job, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, because the Jamaicans, we're, we're brutal, right? You know, it's just like, I was like, no, I'm, I'm building a commodities exchange. It's like, okay, okay, sweetie, um, it's in Patwa, you know, yeah. and it's just like, so I'm, I'm praying for you so that you can have a real job or, you know, he left his good paying job as a banker making almost six figures and what is he doing now? He's driving a taxi. You know? <laughs> but yeah. when you believe in something, you've got to take the risk. Mm-hmm. If you don't take the risk, you'll always have regret. If you're young, that's the time when you have to fail, right? Because you can bounce back. You can make changes. You can make adjustments. And I would even say for older entrepreneurs, I'm 38, people who are 45, people who are 50, still take the risk. You have to make more calculations because you don't have as much time to take the risk. You have to believe in yourself, trust yourself. Like, I really believe that God put everything in me. Like, I learned this Hebrew word, the zarah, the seed, has everything it needs before it is even put in the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before I was created, I had everything that I needed, but now I just have to actualize or realize my potential. And I think what I'm doing and learning is my own potential, like a flower. As I grow, I'm starting to recognize I can do greater things than I even imagined. And now the thought process, and I'll say this to entrepreneurs, if you think about that, you can do it. The dream's not big enough. Whatever you think about, the dream's bigger than that. So that's got to be your internal motivation. If we say Gaius is going to make a billion dollars in five years, and I say that out loud in my heart, I'm saying that's too low. That's mm. too low. What, what's, what's pushing me, what's driving me, and I'm saying to myself, in 20 years, we'll be as big as J.P. Morgan, $100 billion in revenue. People laugh at me. That's mm. okay. But when I'm 58 and you need a job, just remember. <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, you know, that guy said it. And, you know, and follow. If you say you're going to do something, no matter what, follow through and do it. And if it's, if it's not profitable, you know, think about it, tell them why you can't do it, but you need to follow through. You cannot drop the ball on yourself. If you create an atmosphere where you quit on yourself, you will never be successful because your brain starts to register that every time you try something, you quit. Mm. 
So it's a mind game. So when you say you're going to do something, you need to do it because the synapses start to build those boutons between the firings and, and it'll start to recognize that, no, 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 they only always go this far and then they stop. So we won't give enough uh, information or energy to go further. So for myself, I can't fail myself. If I say Neil's going to do it, I have to do it. And I got to find a way to do it because I can't fail myself. Mm. That's great advice. Thank you. Thanks, God. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Neil. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me as well. Enjoy. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.